0: So you might like to take your Bibles, and it is uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 14, which can be found on page 1140 in the Red Bibles, Um, and we have Bibles in other languages and versions, which uh, are on the screen, um, and page numbers for those are, are available there. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong, but for those who do wrong. but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Paul, thanks very much. It will help me enormously if you keep that open in front of you. Well, they used to say that uh, in polite company, the two topics you shouldn't talk about are uh, religion and politics, and I somehow seem to have wound up uh, preaching on Romans 13, where it talks about both of them. So um, I don't know how I've done that, but there we go. The reason why it was often said that those two subjects were not subjects for polite conversation and for polite company is, of course, they're hot topics, topics where people have uh, really intense feelings very often, very passionate about them, uh, a point where people can easily be uh, offended. They are hot topics, Uh, They're hot topics in society, but they've been hot topics for centuries. Throughout history, uh, the church has wrestled with uh, how the church relates to the state, the government. Uh, Going back at least as far as the 5th century, when the great Augustine of Hippo uh, wrote his City of God, uh, and he talked about church and state relations at some length in that book. Um, And down the centuries since... Christians have been thinking about how they relate um, to the state. But it's more than just a historical or theologically interesting uh, point. It's relevant. It's right up to date. So um, recently I guess we might have seen pictures like this on the news where one faith community uh, was objecting to what state schools were teaching and they issued a protest. Um, but it's not just a, a faith community in one bit of Birmingham, uh, it's something that can happen uh, for um, those who own bed and breakfasts, those who own baker shops, nurses, teachers, doctors, all sorts of people, often find a conflict between their, their, their personal faith, their belief, and the state. Now, it's not my job today to tell you the rights and wrongs of any of those cases, I guess, in a room this size. We all have different opinions about the different nuances of all the different cases, uh, and that's to be expected. Um, my job is to do something different, which is to teach Romans 13, where Paul outlines uh, the principles for the way the church should relate to the governing authorities, the state. As I do that, I'm aware that we live in a politically divided landscape. Maybe never been more divided. Even in this room, I bet we have strong opinions probably on many different sides of many different issues. And so once again, it's not my job to be telling you about politics and things like that. It's my job to teach you what Romans 13 says. But, but interesting to note, first century Rome may well have been just as politically divided and just as much of a hot spot as the world we're living in today. Uh, There was an edict in in Rome about 10 years before this letter was written, expelling all the Jews from Rome. And then another edict overturning that and allowing them to come back in. And you can imagine for this church there in first century Rome, uh, wondering this community of Jews and Gentiles, but the Jews had gone away for 10 years, then they've been brought back, Uh, they've been made sort of scapegoats perhaps by society in, in large part. How do the Gentile Christians who've been in Rome all along, how do they relate to the Jewish brothers and sisters who've come back in, in this difficult cultural climate, politically divided, politically tense, potentially hostile, and of course, first century Rome wasn't always an easy place for a Christian to be. How does the church relate to the state? It's important to say it's the church, Uh, there's a difference between the church as an organization and individual Christians, and we'll get on to that. But actually, I hope what we'll see here is Paul has a wonderfully positive vision. A vision that might just come as a breath of fresh air and sanity in a, in a world and a political landscape at the minute, which, I don't know about you, sometimes seems to make me go crazy. Well, what does Paul say? Well, um, as we look at this, the other thing I just want to say, by way of preliminary is, it's one of those passages where there'll be somewhere deep inside of you a desire to say, yes, but... Okay? So as we go through it, there'll be points where you go, yeah, that's all well and good, but what about situation X? What about this? I hope we can address that, but can I ask us all to park that just for a minute and first of all, listen to what the text actually says before we go to the yes buts. Okay? So let's try and get to grips with what Paul is really saying here. And I've got two points to make. Uh, and, and here's the first one. Paul tells us to live as a gospel community subject to human law. Vers- uh, chapters 12 to 16 as a whole uh, are talking about how Paul wants to form a gospel community. So he spends 11 chapters in Romans unpacking what the gospel is and the huge impact it has on our lives as people, uh, on our way of understanding the world and ourselves and God. Uh, and he does all that because his real purpose is chapters 12 to 16. He wants to create in Rome a gospel community that has a vision and a mission. It's a community with a cause, a cause to spread the gospel, a cause to live for Jesus' glory. And he needs to take those 11 chapters to drill it into his hearers and to drill it into us how beautiful and wonderful the gospel is. So that by the time we get to the working out of the gospel in our community, we're ready for it, and we're willing to say, yes, this is something to belong to. What strikes me as interesting is, as he, as he spells out what it means for us as a gospel community, there's a whole chapter, well, no, half a chapter, on relating to the state. I don't know that many church mission statements, church vision statements that have a section on this is how, as a church, we relate to the state. And yet Paul thinks it's an important part of them being a gospel community in Rome is the way they relate to the state. Uh, And what he says, basically, is is this. He gives us one command. He gives two reasons for that command and a summary. So if you drift off at any point, verse 5, just need to remember that. So here's his one command in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. That's the command. Be subject. Be submissive. Obey. Be in a humble posture toward the state that says, basically, your default is what the government tells us to do, we're going to do. Okay? That's the, that's the basic position. And right away, people say, oh, be subject. That feels a bit... Is that demeaning to be subject? Just bear in mind that the Son of God himself in the Bible is said to be subject to God the Father. And the Son of God is the most precious, glorious being in the entire universe. If it's not beneath his dignity... Then it shouldn't be beneath ours either to be subjects. In fact, more than that, it's authority and submission is part of the order that God has put into His universe in all sorts of different ways. Um, and so, it's not a bad thing. And in fact, that is the first reason that Paul gives us—a first of his two reasons—for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He says the same thing twice. He really wants to drill it in, doesn't he? God has set the world up in such a way that there is order, there is authority. Part of that is the government. And that government is there. Do you see later on in verse 4, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. It is good to be governed. It is good to be governed. That's a very important point for us to grasp hold of, particularly at this moment, I think. A time when it's very easy, and many people from all sides are taking lots of shots at our political leaders and those in authority. And I don't know what you think about that. That's not the point. The point is, it is good to be governed. People sometimes complain that it seems like right chaos, complete anarchy. If you've ever lived in an actual anarchy, you wouldn't think what we live in is anarchy. There are places in the world today and throughout history that have really experienced anarchy. And let me tell you, they are not pleasant places. By global standards, by the standards of world history, we live in quite an orderly place, even in this politically turbulent time. Comparatively, very orderly. Do you ever just say a prayer of thanks to God? God, thank you, you've put me in a nation that is governed. Thank you for doing that, because it is good to be governed. And that's why, that's reason one, why it's right to obey, that God has put these things in place for our good. The order and authority is there for the good ordering of, of the world as a whole, and so we should obey. The second reason is the authorities are there to punish wrongdoers. Uh, if you rebel against the authority, you're rebelling against God. That's sort of reason one. Uh, but then later on, we, we see um, rulers hold no terror, verse 3, for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. It's the the classic policeman test. How does a law-abiding citizen respond when they see a policeman? Well, ordinarily, in a well-governed society, you're perfectly happy. It's good. It's a sign of order. Do what is right, and you will be commenders. And don't do what is wrong, because, verse 4, they do not bear the sword for no reason. They're there to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And so if reason number one is the universe is an ordered place and that's good, reason number two is that the government uses its authority to punish wrongdoing, therefore don't be a wrongdoer. Uh, Don't bring disgrace on yourself and on the church and on Jesus by being one of those people in society that does what is wrong, what is evil. Instead, do what is right and you will be commended, says Paul. So there are the two reasons. Uh, One, order and authority are good and God's put them in place. Two, you don't want to be punished for doing wrong because punishment's unpleasant and because it wouldn't speak well of the church. And it's all summarized, do you see it, in verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, that's the command, not only because of possible punishment, that was the second reason, but also as a matter of conscience. Why conscience? Because God has put this in place. And so it's right to submit to the way God has ordered the world. Live as a gospel community, therefore, subject to human law. Obey. That's the basic command. Obey the government. How does Paul apply it to first century Rome, verses 6 and 7? Well, pay your taxes. This is why you also pay taxes for the authorities of God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. That probably means like a sales duty on any goods you import and export. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. That was how it applied to them in the first instance. What about us? I guess it's still right to say you should pay the taxes and things that you owe. But more broadly, it means obeying the government wherever the government is trying to create order. So let me give you an example that is very relevant at the minute. Safeguarding. Safeguarding. I wonder how you feel as I say the word safeguarding. Does it provoke feelings of dread in your heart as you go, not another meeting in a midweek when I could really be doing something else with my time? Not another DBS form to fill in. Oh, aren't those things tiring? I've done 23 already. Safeguarding is the government's way of trying to keep people safe. It is a good thing to do. I know I'm right there with you. I can find it as tiring and time-consuming as anyone else. I have filled in my share, fair share of DBS forms, let me tell you. And yes, the government wants us to do it. We should submit to them and do it to keep people safe. And we should do it gladly we should be thankful that we live in a society where the government cares about keeping people safe. That's one thing uh, that it might mean. The other thing I was struck by, and I think this is where it gets hard, this is where I found it hard this week, and I realized I needed to do some repenting. In verse 7, it says, if people are worthy of respect, give them respect. And I guess in our current political climate on social media or wherever... There's precious little of that about. I think this is even harder to obey in a democracy than it would have been for them. Because part of living in a democracy is we have the right to freely, freely to share our opinions. And we should exercise that right, we should be part of the democratic process. But sometimes that freedom of speech can just cause us to go a bit too far. And to say something that actually goes too far and is disrespectful. Let me tell you how I'm going to apply this for myself, and you can all keep me accountable to this. This might not be your battle, but I've noticed that sometimes I dismissively refer to elected leaders only by their surname, as though they were a schoolchild. It's a kind of way of denigrating them, doing them down. May. Corbyn. Something like that. So I think it was part of me marking out the fact that I want to respect them a bit more. I should refer to them as Mr. Corbyn. Mrs. May, the Prime Minister, the leader of the opposition. In a world so torn apart by divisive outbursts, uh, maybe if Christians were known to be those who could respect even those they disagree with, maybe especially those they disagree with, I wonder if that would just be a breath of fresh air in society. I wonder if that might commend the gospel almost as much as anything else. You know These Christians, they, they don't seem to get the same sort of anger and bitterness as everyone else does regarding these issues. Maybe I'd point to the fact that our ultimate hope doesn't rest in any government or political arrangement in this world. That actually we have a king of kings and lord of lords worthy of all respect and we can trust him. Now, Let's talk about the whatabouts. Because you say, that all sounds fine, and ordinarily that might be okay. But what about if you live in situation X? What about if you live under a brutal tyrant? Or as somebody said to me between the services, in their country, uh, where where they're from, the election was stolen. So somebody was not elected correctly and just stole the the presidency. What, What about those things? Well, I think the Bible would encourage us that, and I think Paul's argument makes this clear, there is a time to stand against uh, government. The reason the government should be obeyed is because God has put them there. So the government is over us, but they're under God. So the time when it's right for a Christian or a church to take a stand against a government is when that government is telling them to disobey God. So you can think about the example of Daniel in the Old Testament who serves Nebuchadnezzar, who's a power-mad tyrant in many ways, he serves him faithfully as a good civil servant. And the time he says no is the point at which Nebuchadnezzar says, you need to worship me, Daniel. And Daniel says, no, no, I'm not going to disobey God. If it's a direct conflict, you obey God, not the human government." If obeying the human government would mean disobeying God, you do not follow through with that. I think biblically there are very few other reasons not to obey the state. I can't think of one, actually, as I've been racking my brains. And the thing that struck me was that the early church did obey the government, despite being under some tyrannical and oppressive governments. Governments that particularly sought out and persecuted Christians. The second century writer, Tertullian, uh, said this. He says, Christians have become uh, the scapegoat for every public disaster. He said, if the Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise, if the earth moves or the skies don't, if there is famine, pestilence, or sword, or anything, whatever, the cry goes up at once, the Christians to the lion. What all of them, to one lion. His point was, yeah, they were the scapegoats. Paul's writing this under the reign of Emperor Nero, who had no time for Christians, blamed them for disasters that uh, were not caused by them. They knew what it was to be persecuted by governments that were not righteous, and yet Paul could write this those red lines, those points at which we have to say no, may be a little further away than we'd like to imagine, if Paul can write this under Emperor Nero. And I was reading one commentator that made this very helpful point. As a church, our no will be that much more powerful and effective if we're diligent to keep doing our yeses. So if we keep obeying the state where we can keep saying, we want to be good citizens, we want to do the right thing where we can, then at those points where we have to, I'm so sorry, we can't do that, people will stand up and take notice because they'll say, that's not like those Christians. They they are good citizens. They try and keep order. Well, I've tried to put it like this. Gospel power is not political power. I've tried to summarise it a bit like this. What I mean by that is the church is not meant to be a revolutionary political movement that seizes power for itself. God's got a much bigger job for us. He wants us to get the power of the gospel at work out there in the world. That's not to say, of course, that individual Christians might not be called to work in the arena of politics. Absolutely. But the church isn't a political lobby group. Partly because the church has to be open to people from all political opinions and persuasions. Uh, You know, we have to be a place where leavers and remainers can both come because the gospel's bigger than that. But also, because the history of the church seems to tell us, I think Paul is saying here, don't get sidetracked. Be good citizens. Don't try for revolution. Just, Just keep living on your life in faithfulness, quietness, submission to the state because you've got a much bigger job to do. And an interesting thing about church history is the church has perhaps been most effective at changing the world when it's not being in power. So Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity, a great book. It charts the first three centuries of the church and how the church absolutely transformed the world. And during that time, virtually no Christians held high office. Something similar is happening today in China, actually, where a huge movement of Christians is rising up. They don't hold political power. But, but the gospel power shines through in those moments. I'm going to tell a story. This story is almost certainly not true, because no one is this witty. But that's Thomas Aquinas there, who was a, a theologian in the medieval church. And uh, one day he went to see uh, the Pope in the Vatican. And as he goes there, this was at the height of the church's political power and influence. And the Pope was there counting out all the taxes that people had sent him, all these gold and silver coins. And as Thomas walks in, he turns and says, You see, Brother Thomas, it is no longer true that the church can say, Silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas, probably with a wry smile, turns and says... That may be so, Holy Father, but neither can it say, get up and walk. Almost certainly not true, because no one's that witty. But there was a deeper point. When the church grasps for political power, it loses the real power that Jesus called us to, the the power of the gospel, the power to change lives and, and therefore change communities. We're not a political lobby group. God's got a much bigger mission, for us. And, and actually, as we work through the rest of Romans, we're going to see some of that mission unfold. So do keep coming back. And so live as a gospel community subject to human law. But our second point, and it's more brief, love as a gospel community shaped by God's law. If politics isn't to be our driving focus, uh, acquiring political power and being a political lobby group, but, but rather being submissive, good citizens not making waves, then where should we focus our energy? And that's love. It's this which shows our hope belongs to a better kingdom than any earthly kingdom. Because it's love that shapes God's kingdom. It's love that made the universe. It's love that sacrifices itself for the other. That's the power behind uh, the universe, and that is what we're called to. So uh, let no debt remain outstanding in verse 8, because you have to pay all your taxes, except there's one debt. There's one debt, and I've called this the present duties of love. There's one debt that remains outstanding, the continuing debt to love one another. And what that means is you can't pay that debt off. Suppose I wake up tomorrow morning, and I say, I'm going to work really hard to love my church family. I'm going to work so hard. I'll be praying for you. I'll be trying to do acts of service for you. And and say I do a really good job one day of serving every member of my church family that I possibly can. And I go to bed feeling really satisfied that I've done it. I wake up the next day. I still owe the same debt tomorrow. I can't just do it once and say I've paid it off. It's a debt I owe every day to all of you. And a debt you owe every day to me and to one another. You can't pay it off because this is the power to shape the kind of gospel community Paul wants to create in Rome, wants to create in Manchester, the kind of gospel community, actually, that people are crying out for. People feel so disconnected from one another. Uh, There's a longing for deep community, and the gospel can create it. And and it's our job uh, not to be lobbying for political institutions for huge changes as a church, but to create the kind of community the world's really longing for. Because the whole law, God's law, the commandments in verse 9, and he goes through several of them, they're all about love. God's one command, basically, is love. Love me, love each other. The commandments spell out what that should look like. But at heart, it's about love. And it's our duty to one another to live lives of love to shape a community around what God has revealed, what love looks like. Love does no harm to a neighbor, verse 10. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's where our energy goes. The present duties of love. And finally, the future destiny of love. Why love? Because love marks out who we're meant to be. So verse 11, do this understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What Paul's saying there is be what you're becoming. If you're a Christian, you belong in God's new day, God's new dawn, the new world that God is making, the world shaped by love. So be now what you will be that day. Live now as though you were already there. That's the challenge. Uh, That's how we form this community of of love. Live in the light of the day because that's where you're going to spend eternity. And so in verse 13, let's behave decently, not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, all sorts of things we're not to do. But, but here's the question that will get to the heart of that when you're faced with a choice. Here's a good question. Would I do this in the new creation? When you're making a choice about whether to do some particular action or not, is this the kind of action that, that belongs in the new creation? Is it the kind of thing I'll be doing when I'm surrounding Jesus' throne with the rest of my brothers and sisters? Because if it's not appropriate there, then I'm not sure it's appropriate for me now. Because I'm to be what I'm to become. I'm to live in the day. I'm to be a picture. And we, as a community, to be a picture of the kind of world God wants to make. So keep that future destiny in mind as we uh, look at what it is to live for one another. And then verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good picture, isn't it? Uh, Clothing is putting something on that is visible, that makes a statement, that people can see. What should people see when they look at us? They should see Jesus, his love. They should see a community shaped by his love. My old college um, principal uh, said this to us once it helps us get to the nub of of what love is and what it looks like. He said this, he says, be kind to the people in your churches. The Son of God was pleased to die for them. If that's how far the love of God extends for his people, then don't we want to reflect that, echo that? And it should be visible. In, if Paul was writing today, he, he might actually say, apply your filters, your Snapchat or Instagram filters or something like that. Uh, make a visible change that's there for all the world to see. This is basically a gratuitous chance to share a picture of my cute niece. Um, that's Lily there. And, uh, uh, but her mum decided one day to post this. Didn't massively make my dad that happy. Said, Stop making a fool of my granddaughter, was I think his comment. Uh, but it looks different. Makes a visible change. Well, it's a, it's a silly example, uh, but the point there is actually what should people see when they look at us? It should be striking. It should be different. Like after a filter's been applied to a photo. But what they should see in our community and in our lives is, is the love that sacrifices for one another. That's the power to build a community. That's the power to change the world. It won't come from political lobbying. And yet, when the church has been committed to this, it has changed the world. Time and again. And our attitude toward the government, and then our attitude toward this community, will go together. Humble submission will show that we're not living for the here and now. Our final hope and future is not in securing a good Brexit deal or remaining. That's not our final hope. Our final hope is in the kingdom of heaven. And as we, we love that out, live that out and love that out <laughs> as a community here, that's what will draw people in. By this shall all people know you are my disciples, said Jesus, if you have love one for another. A greater love has no one than this. They lay down their lives for their friends. It wasn't just words from Jesus. He kept his manifesto promises all the way to the cross. And that's the cross that should be the heartbeat. Of what we're doing here. So let's not get sidetracked and let's live and love in gospel community and pray that God will show his glory to the world through it. I'm going to pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for its clarity, its refreshing uh, breeze of good common sense. It's not always easy to obey, but help us to to listen to the goodness of being subject, being submissive to the rulers and authorities, not making waves where we can. Help us to pay what we do, what we owe. And most of all, help us to to keep paying that debt of love to one another, realizing that it's never fully paid, that we owe it to one another. Help us to be shaped so by your words that people are clear that our hope uh, belongs to a better world, a new world that you are bringing in. Help us to be a foretaste, a picture uh, of that world, we pray. All to your glory. Amen.